better? Okay, just do this. I have um, been blessed especially by studying the images of the tabernacle from Exodus 25 to 37, 38, as they're found in the Gospel of John. Now, most of you would, would understand that perhaps the Gospel of John was written a, a bit later than the earlier Gospels, and uh, the Apostle John focuses on a, some different things about the Lord uh, and many allusions to the Old Testament. So what I'm going to do, I'm not going to preach from one passage, but I'm going to kind of fly over John, hopefully to encourage you not only in how Scripture is all united, both Old and New Testaments, but also to rekindle in us just the love for the Savior that we have and how he fulfills all the hopes and dreams and aspirations and promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. It's like Jesus, um, John portrays Jesus almost like he's walking through the tabernacle and, and saying, the ark, the ark, you know, these different things, the, the altar of burnt offering, that's about me. You know, the, the labor, that's about me. The light, that's about me, and so forth. And we want to just look a little bit ab- ab- about that. So let me just read, and then I'll pray, and then we'll I'll just go through this. I want to begin in John chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 9. If you have your text, I'd love to have you follow along. John chapter 1, starting at verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father, the only God, excuse me, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Father, we ask in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus, that you would cause us to see wonderful things in your word and to just grow in our faith and knowledge and and grace in walking with you. Thank you that this scripture is all inspired by you, all 66 books, and they testify to your Son. They testify to your great work, sending him into the world and accomplishing salvation through him and applying it to us through the Holy Spirit. Lord God, thank you for the privilege to be here. Thank you for this congregation, this church. I thank you for David and Katriana and their family. I thank you for Jeff Mitchell. Pray, Lord, you just pray a healing upon him. And Lord God, just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As long as I can remember, I've always been interested in maps. So if I go to somebody's house, there's a map on the wall or something, I always, I always look at it. I don't know why, I just like maps. 
And when I was a kid, especially, uh, I was taken up with the idea that one day I might find a treasure map, you know, to be able to follow the clues like Indiana Jones or something and find, uh, find some great treasure. I began to realize after I became a Christian that uh, the Bible is a great map of what it means to know God. Now, it's not that we find him, but he has come to us. And he gives us so many images, so many truths to help us know him and to help us know how to come near him and approach him. And the verse I want to just unpack here is verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sometimes it'll say, uh, take up residence among. If you have some notes in your side margin, it may note, uh, and some people actually will translate it, he uh, tabernacled among us. It's the same word uh, in, uh, in the Greek Old Testament that referred to the tabernacle. And so John is intentionally calling attention to us that Jesus is going to be fulfillment of everything that the tabernacle stood for. And in fact, as we read the Gospel of John, we'll see that uh, so many of the features are mentioned, actually almost as if you were walking through the tabernacle. Uh, in, in Exodus, uh, when I say a map, it's, it's sort of really so to speak, we don't really find God. He found us. He finds us. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with a plan to build a tent whereby God would manifest his presence. God would dwell there. Uh, but in that tent, there, were, there was furniture, there were things, there were objects that were almost like clues to what it means to approach God, to know God. In the ancient world, most uh, peoples would have idols. Well, Israel didn't have that. They had the tabernacle, they had, a, they had an altar of burnt offering, they had a laver where there was cleansing. Uh, you walk into the tent, there was a bread, uh, laid out. There was a light lampstand. There was an altar of incense. And inside the Holy Holies, there was a box, a gold box. So it was different. It was different. But the message was God has come down to dwell among us. And he's a particular kind of God. He's a specific God. He's not just a generic God of the nations. And there's a way when you come to fellowship with him, there's a way you approach him. And these are the things that I believe are touched upon in the gospel of John. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those objects. Now, um, when we go through, excuse me a second. When we go through these these passages, we see that the Bible is telling us, both in the Old Testament, who God is, but also in the New Testament, who Jesus is. And we find out it's one and the same God, that Jesus is the perfect representation of the God who is revealed and reveals himself in the Old Testament. So I want to just take five of these things that John says and alludes to from the tabernacle to say, this is actually about Jesus. Yes, Moses gave this, and the ancient Israelites approached God this way, but they're really about God's Son who comes into the world. Just as Moses came down from the mountain, pitched the tent, and God dwelt there, his glory was manifested there, John says... Jesus, God's Son, has come from heaven, pitched his tent here, and manifests the glory of God to us. And so that unites all of Scripture together. Now, some of this is, or maybe a lot of this is already, you know this, and maybe you've taught it in Sunday school and read about it. But I want to take five of the things that if you were a Jew walking through the tabernacle, and that John takes in, in calling out the kind of Savior we have, 
um, that, that, that speak to me that I think are very clear in the, in the scripture. And the very first thing uh, is that um, as you walked into the tabernacle, you would meet first and foremost the, the uh, altar of burnt offering, uh, sacrifice. And we see Jesus presented right off in John 1 as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's a lot of confusion today about who Jesus is, but in, uh, in, the, in the scripture, he's presented very clearly as the one who ascended into the world, uh, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from death and sin and guilt. Uh, and if we don't know that about Jesus, if we just think primarily that Jesus is a good teacher or a mystic or social justice warrior or something, whatever people tend to think about Jesus, he first and foremost came to die to bear our sin, uh, to give us new life. And so we see that right off as we open up the text in, in John chapter 1, in verse 29, the Lamb of God, the very first testimony in God, uh, John's gospel is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's also presented as the one with greater love who lays down his life. He is like the seed which falls to the earth and creates life for many. He's the one sacrifice for sin for all time, sufficient for all of us. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. In the Old Testament, sin was spoken of as being covered, atoned. In the New Testament, what John says is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. He will deal it, deal with it finally, completely, and forever. He will not just cover it for a season. He will take it away. And the confidence that should give us, one sacrifice for sins, all for all time, for all of God's people. Secondly, as we walk into the tabernacle, we would see uh, what is called the laver. It was a very large basin of water, uh, there was a lot of cleansing that took place in the ancient tabernacle. And Jesus is presented as the sanctifier who cleanses. He's the one who washes and cleanses us. And we see so many miracles in and around water in the Gospel of John, starting uh, with um, the, the miracle in John chapter 2, the large basin of water that uh, was used for cleansing that Jesus actually turns into wine, the six stone water pots. John baptizes with water. Uh, there's a miracle that takes place beside the pool of Bethesda. Uh, in John 5 and John 7, Jesus is the living water. And then as we were thinking about this topic of Jesus, the servant of the Lord, uh, he washes his own disciples' feet in John chapter 13. How powerful that is. He washed their feet. They were shocked. They didn't know what to do. This is... Maybe knowing Jesus as sanctifier is probably something we don't readily learn right off. We, we are happy to trust him as our savior, as our sin bearer, but to trust Jesus as our sanctifier, the one who cleanses us, the one who changes us, the one who keeps restoring us in our walk with God. Um, that, that comes as we walk with the Lord and actually as we become more and more acquainted with our failure. But I want you to notice something about this washing. Every one of these things that I mentioned about the, the cleansing of water, it's always associated with an event of joy. A wedding, a healing, new life, 
and cleansing of his disciples' feet. Peter was so shocked that Jesus would do this that he said, no, 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 don't do that. And Jesus said, if, you don't, if I don't do this, you do not have a part in me, a share. And Peter responded like most of us would have said, oh, then wash all of me. And Jesus said, no, you don't need that. <laughs> My death will wash all of you. And you've believed you are clean. But as you track through this dirty, corrupt, perverted world, you're just going to get dirty. You're going to get defiled. You're just, even as careful as you might want to be, you will get defiled. I think for me as a Christian, to think that confession, restoration, walking with God, forgiveness, is, is a joyful thing. And it's something that the Lord knows. He doesn't resent us coming to him for cleansing. That's what, that, that's what gets me. When I was younger and lived on a farm and our dogs would get tangled with skunks and then they would come running to us, I did not want to see them. I did not want to wash them. But you don't see that the Lord is in any way turned off by his disciples' defilements. He knew that. He planned that. He left us in a world where there's a lot of defilement and it's an expected thing. So I think one of the things that we need to do as Christians is not only have a joyful view of our forgiveness, the one sacrifice for sins for all time, but a joyful view of our cleansing, of our sanctification. This is a great, this is a great thing. We're being re- made ready for a wedding. We are being made ready for God's presence. The Lord doesn't resent any of the cleansing and, that we need to do. I love this uh, quote from uh, A.W. Pink who once said, God foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. And may we be encouraged by that. Thirdly, as we are going into the tabernacle, we would um, come into the, the holy place. There's a holy of holies, and then the outer area was called the holy place. And to our right would be a table with 12 loaves of bread, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were replaced every week. So there was always fresh bread on the table. Um, and this represented, of course, God's care and provision for his, his people. This same theme is brought up as we get to John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. God sustained his people through the wilderness. He fed them. He provided for them. In Christ, he provides for our every and ever, everlasting needs that we have before God. He is the bread. He fed the, the 5,000. And for me, one of the most beautiful passages in all the scripture, of, or at least in, in the Gospel of John, to me, at the very end, after the resurrection, and Jesus meets his disciples beside the lake, beside the Sea of Galilee, and they catch the fish, and they realize it's Jesus because he just made the fish get in the net. And they bring the fish, and they come up, and there's a campfire. And they live this way for three years, sitting around a campfire with their master. And here is their resurrected Lord of glory sitting back at the campfire. He said, bring some fish over. There were already fish on the fire and bread. Where did he get the bread? Did he go to a store? Perhaps. Did the ravens bring it like they did uh, for Elijah by the brook? 
Satan told him one time, he said, you can turn these stones into bread. Jesus did because Satan was the one who was telling him to do it, not his father. Was this, a, was this a time when he turned stones to bread? I don't know. But what encourages me is here is the Lord of glory resurrected. The new creation has begun. They're sitting beside the Sea of Galilee, beside a campfire, eating fresh roasted fish and bread. What a, you can't paint a more beautiful picture than that. That's our Savior. He is the bread, the bread of life. He will provide for us. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This does not mean every want, though the Lord grants us many, many things we want and desire. But he has promised. He's promised whatever we need to know love and serve him he will provide for us recently i've just become so enamored with the 23rd psalm and i used to for so long think the 23rd psalm was just for when you were dying you know you read it in a in a hospital room that's when you read it i'm going this this is david this is david's life that that the lord is his shepherd he's not going to lack anything he's going to have streams of water he's going to have green pastures he's got god's protection he's got the ways of righteousness he's got all these Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's not a psalm about dying. It's a psalm about living. He provides. He is the one who sustains us. So Lord Jesus, the light of the, the, uh, the, the bread of life, Lord Jesus, who uh, is our Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who cleanses us, and washes us, is the one who provides, sustains for us, sustains us. So the fourth thing that we would face is if we were in the tabernacle, we turn from the table and we would look to the other wall and we would see a golden lampstand that was always lit, always burning. In your light, we see light, says in Psalm 36. Light all through the scriptures from Genesis 1 to John 1, the light, the light. And in John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the light who has come into the world. He is the one who reveals truth. He is our teacher. He's the one who illumines our heart to see that he is the Savior, that he is the way and the truth. He is the truth. Now, it's not just he came to give us new truths or to be committed to truth, which we, we should be, but he came to give us a whole new way to, of seeing I love this quote from C.S. Lewis after he was converted. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I found that true in my life. All the things that were so confusing about life. When I came to Christ, it's just like the Lord took the picture and turned it right side up. And I go, oh, well, some of these things start to make sense now. So Christians are committed to truth. Jesus is the truth. He reveals the truth. And he is our teacher. First John 5.20, John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, his Son Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. Fifth, uh, fifthly, when we uh, move ahead, we come to the uh, altar of incense, which corresponds to John chapter 17, which is, I think, where David is preaching even now. 
And, and most scholars and commentators would realize John is presenting Jesus' prayer just as if he were the high priest in the Old Testament because the high priest in the Old Testament would go to the altar of incense, which was a place of prayer, representing the nation. He would have over his heart the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. He'd have the 12 names inscribed on his shoulders. He would bear their burdens before God, bearing their burdens on, the, on his heart. He would go and intercede and be an advocate for the people. And that's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 17. This is all often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he is representing us. He is our mediator. He's our priest. He's our advocate. Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology wrote this. He said, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, of course, not just then, but even now in heaven, when, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not even notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. That's a good summary of the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus, not only at the John 17, but in heaven even now. This helps me because I think in our world, our culture, it is so easy to feel alone, to feel abandoned, to feel like, Perhaps God is silent, or God doesn't care, or God's busy somewhere else. He's not watching. Someone's asleep at the wheel. One of the things we learn about Jesus, he never slumbers nor sleeps, as we see in the God of the Old Testament. He is always aware of the needs of his people. So we should be encouraged that he is our advocate, always aware of our needs and interceding with the Father. I want to just look at two last verses, uh, and we're going to turn to John 20. And commentators are sort of divided as to the purpose of this. One of the things that um, John comments about the resurrection of Jesus that the other gospel writers did not. And that is when the women looked into the tomb, and specifically Mary, when she looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Why that detail? Why did, because you said we saw angels, I saw two angels in there where Jesus had lain. But they're specifically sitting at either end of where the crucified body of our Lord lay, but had been resurrected from. I believe, and I mean, again, this is one of those things that you study for yourself. I believe this is, again, John's allusion to the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels who looked down on the mercy seat of propitiation to the place where God was satisfied. It is finished. A redemption is accomplished. The new creation has begun. And I think those angels are sitting there and they didn't stand like the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus was gone because he was raised. But I believe it was symbolic that Jesus himself is the Ark of the Covenant in the very presence of God. In him, 
is all the fullness of deity. In him, in him, you are complete. What a joyful, triumphant culmination to the Gospel of John to realize that all these, these prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Now, one last verse in John, uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And I'm asking the question here, why is this important? I mean, what I've just gone through, many of you have probably already studied. You've maybe even charted it out for your kids in Sunday school or kids at home. Is this just for us to have a cool chart? Is this for us to know the unity of the Testaments? That's, That's for sure, too. But John tells us the purpose of his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Just two things I want to say about that. For the non-Christian world, for your friends, for your extended family, for your co-workers who do not know the Lord Jesus, these truths not just the chart, but the truths about who Jesus is, our sanctifier, our sacrifice, the light who shines into our hearts, the, um, all of these things we've read. They need to know that. John, the Gospel of John is one of the most perfect ways, if you have a non-Christian friend that says, you know, I read something on History Channel the other night, or I saw someone on the History Channel the other night about Jesus. He was actually came to Earth in a UFO, or, you know, I don't, whatever. I don't know why they put that on the History Channel. But, you know, just, just turn to them and say, you know, would you read a short book with me written by an eyewitness and companion of Jesus about the things Jesus actually said about himself? And just let them study the words of Jesus. I find as I read through the Gospel of John, all of those images are still immediately relevant today. Water, food, you know, all these things we've been reading about. Um, not to mention things like the Good Shepherd, uh, the, the, the vine and the branches and bearing fruit. Jesus uses many metaphors about himself to describe who he is. So there's much confusion about who the Lord Jesus is. And just like the, arc, the um, tabernacle was given so that the people might know who God is and how to approach him, so we also have the Gospel, and specifically the Gospel of John, that we might know who Jesus is, the Son of his Father who fulfills all those things, and he is a particular Savior. He's not just a generic, legendary, miracle-working Savior. He is the Savior who redeems us completely. The last thing I want to uh, just emphasize, when John says that believing, you would receive life in his name. And in his name is just a way of saying the specificity of who this Savior is. We've just been, just been studying about. But the believing part is in a, in a progressive uh, aspect. Definitely in, in this gospel, the, the gospel is written not just to bring people to faith, but to keep them going on in faith. That's why we meet together, to speak one another, to sing psalms and hymns to one another, to keep us going in the faith. So we need all of these images. We need this awareness of what the tabernacle was about and what Jesus was about and how he fulfilled that. The light of the world is the way, the truth, and the life. He's... We need these things every day. 
And so here are the questions that we should ask ourselves, and then I'll just close in prayer and just uh, we'll reflect on them. Uh, do I believe in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Do I believe that he is my sin bearer? Do you believe that? Do you believe that today? Uh, you know, maybe you believe that in confirmation class. Maybe you believe that growing up. Do you believe that today? That he knew all your sins and paid for them 2,000 years ago? That in God's mind, you are already seated in the heavenly places. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? We need to keep coming back to these things. Do you believe that he is your sanctifier? Uh, are you continuing to submit to the cleansing, uh, his cleansing on your life? Uh, do you realize and rest in the fact that the Lord's sanctification is out of his love for your good and it's essentially a joyful thing? Consider joy. Consider it all joy when you undergo these things. Uh, do you still believe that he is your provider and sustainer? Are you satisfied with what he's given you? Will you keep trusting him to sustain you and provide what you need? This is something that in our world, I, and, and I, as I pe- meet people that have been raised in the church, I've been in ministry for many, many years, people get to that point where they go, I don't know, I just don't like, I just don't like the life he handed me. Well, that's a time to come and, 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 and sit down and talk to the bread of life, that you have eternal life. And he's provided everything you need to bring him glory, to know him, and to get through this life with a way that just pleases the Father. Is he the light of the world to you? Are you sitting under his truth? Are you growing in your understanding uh, uh, of the Lord and his word? Are you, are you increasingly able to see all things from God's perspective? Especially in our world that's just bombarding us 24-7 with lies and images and moods and feelings and temptations. Are you seeking truth? Are you resting in that truth? <clears throat> just a confession of, of my own. It, it, it just last night, I woke up and what was in my head was uh, what, G, what the father said of, the, of, of his son at his baptism. Actually, he said it twice. He said it at the baptism, said it at transfiguration. He said, this is my beloved son. Do you know the rest of it? In whom... I am well pleased. And I thought, Lord, Father, is it possible in this life to see your son the way you see your son? To be as pleased with him as you are pleased with him? I don't know. That's what I'm going to be praying. I just think, what a wonderful thing. I I know God's infinite and we're finite. We're imperfect. We're tainted. We're limited. But if I could just see the world from God's perspective and I could love his son the way he loves his son. Ah, that would be it. Uh, Lastly, are you continuing to trust the Lord as your advocate? Have you given up thinking you've been abandoned? Uh, He doesn't care. He doesn't know what you're going through. We need to combat that thought that God has abandoned you, that the Lord doesn't know, doesn't care. Um, He intercedes he intercedes with the Father. He sent his spirit to us to also intercede. We got double intercessory protection. Call that dual coverage? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, be, it's reverent. I'd say that reverently. 
Robert Murray McShane, I, I love this quote. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Now, we, we, can, we can bank on that, can't we? Let me pray. Father God, we, we do. We behold the Son in whom is your delight. You are pleased. The empty tomb shows your pleasure at his work, completed work, finished work. We thank you for the Savior that we have, the Savior who provides for us, the Savior who cleanses us, the Savior who enlightens and illumines our minds, the Savior whose sin once for all, uh, his sacrifice once for all dealt for all of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful Savior. And we thank you again for this opportunity to be together as your people, worshiping you.